0: It's time for another Out the Gate podcast, where we explore sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay with all kinds of interesting people. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and with all the podcasts out there you have to choose from, I'm thrilled you're listening to this one. This week, I talked to Kimball Livingston. He's an international sailor. Author and commentator. For 14 years, Kimball was on staff at the San Francisco Chronicle covering sailing. He then was the West Coast editor for Sail magazine, and his assignments took him all around the globe to sail on boats big and small, back when papers and magazines actually had budgets to pay reporters to travel. His coverage of sailing has been seen and heard on NPR. Radio New Zealand, and the CBS Evening News. And as a past commodore of St. Francis Yacht Club and current chair of the Junior Sailing at the club, he's had quite a hand in shaping the future of sailing on San Francisco Bay and helping launch youngsters on impressive sailing careers. Kimball and I had a conversation that ranged uh, all over the place from iambic pentameter to snapping spinnaker poles. So hang on and enjoy the interview.
1: Well, if someone asks, What do you do? I say, I'm a writer and I have an unusual specialty. I mostly write about boats and sailing and sailors. And I've Done that through newspapers, magazines, books, movies, and documentaries.
0: Are you a sailor first or are you a writer first?
1: Some years ago in my late parents' house, I opened a drawer and I found a poem I had written when I was 10 years old. It's nothing that I'm offering to share with the world, but that two-page poem, which is pretty long for a 10-year-old, had a fundamental iambic structure and a significant spondaic substitution. I'm quite sure I didn't know what iambic pentameter was or a spondaic substitution, but somehow the instinct was there. I'm not saying that the iambic wasn't flawed, but to your question, which came first, I'd have to say the writing came first.
0: I don't know what spondaic substitution is. So for me and others listening who might not know, can you enlighten us?
1: I'm sure I can't do this in a way that would please a teacher of English or literature, but basically it's a way of breaking the iambic at a point of emphasis. So you're going da-da, 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 da And when you do that at the point that you're trying to emphasize, that is a significant spondite substitution.
0: <laughs> if the writing came first, when did sailing into your life?
1: I grew up on the water. My family did everything you could do on the water except sail. I can remember driving my dad's fish boat uh, when we were living on Buzzards Bay. He was in the Air Force. We were stationed in Massachusetts while I was a little guy. I was probably four years old when he put me behind the wheel of the boat. I thought I was driving it, of course. So that goes way back. My parents loved water skiing when we were stationed in the Midwest. I never got into that in a big way, but being on the water, in the water was always good. And when I was 11 years old, my father strapped a scuba tank on my back and said, son, sink. (laughs) So I got into that and that was good for a while. I haven't done scuba in a while. While I was a teenager, we were stationed in North Texas. There was a big lake. It's called Lake Texoma. It was formed by damming off the Red River, which is the border, the Red River forms the border between Texas and Oklahoma along that stretch. And so if you stand on the southern shore of Lake Texoma and look north, you can see all the way to the coast of Oklahoma. There were sailboats on Texoma. So now I was in high school, I was seeing sailboats on the water, and it just looked good to me. Who knows why one thing appeals to a person and not another? You know, Johnny Mosley and his family are friends of mine, and Johnny grew up in a sailing family, as I'm sure we all know. And as his mother says, well, we gave him every opportunity to sail, and he just wanted to go to the snow. (laughs) I looked at those sailboats on the water. They looked good to me. On two occasions, a high school friend of mine tried to take me sailing. And on both occasions, the sails hung limp and the heat rained down. And it was Texas in the summer and we never went sailing.
0: So what was the first experience that, where you feel like you actually went sailing?
1: I had, had several colleges' experiences and then transferred to Tulane University, New Orleans, which is on the crescent between the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain. In the intervening years, I hadn't thought about sailing at all. Hadn't had anything about sailing on my mind, but it was a hard winter, that winter, and New Orleans, of course, doesn't get snow, but the humidity is just as thick in the winter, and it goes into you all the way to your bones, so it feels very cold. And then, we had a day where the weather broke, and the Caribbean came calling. All of New Orleans poured out into the streets. Everybody went somewhere. All I can imagine is that my angels, guided me all the way across town, because it is all the way across town to the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. And I walked along and I looked at the boats in the marina and I stared at one boat. And then I went and I stared at another boat. And it was like being 13 years old and seeing, really seeing a girl for the first time. (laughs) Within the week I had joined the Tulane Sailing Club. And this was midway through my second semester as a senior, so time was running out for me. But I passed the test, got a key to the clubhouse, 10 bucks a semester to be a member of Tulane Sailing Club. And from that time on, I could sail anytime I could get myself to the lake. I graduated during the summer, I had to, (laughs) I had to take the second semester of freshman chemistry to graduate. And so I was a summer graduate, and about five minutes after that, I moved to San Francisco Bay.
0: And what was it that called you to San Francisco?
1: I had visited a couple times before. We were busy wrapping up the 1960s. Everybody was coming to San Francisco. The difference with me was that I came and I stuck. I had a lot of college friends who came west and they were here for six months or two years or whatever and it wasn't easy and it wasn't all flowers in your hair and Uncle Bob back home could give you a really good job and didn't look so good here and then they disappear. But I was absolutely determined. When I got here, I knew I was home. It was that simple.
0: What memories do you have <laughs> of sailing on San Francisco Bay for the first time? It was colder it's than I expected. Yes, it's different than Lake Pontchartrain, isn't it?
1: <laughs> Just a little bit. The main thing I remember is being thrilled. Everything about it spoke to me really deep and really large. I loved the landscape, I loved the fresh breeze. I loved getting thrashed, and I just knew that I had to be part of this.
0: I should step back a second and ask you how you got on the water in San Francisco, because here you were, fresh out of college, knowing you wanted to get on a boat, but how did you actually go about it?
1: I was living in Sausalito at the time, and I bumped into a guy, and he turned out to be a sailor, and he raced Cal 20s, which were a popular racing class in the day. He needed a crew, just as skippers always do. He invited me along, and then he invited me back. His girlfriend made good brownies, and well, that guy that I bumped into by accident and who took me sailing on a Cal 20 was in my wedding many years later.
0: Oh, I love that. Racing with folks can sure forge strong relationships. Talk a little bit about that. You've done your fair share of racing on San Francisco Bay. What has that meant in your life over, you know, from when you first started to today?
1: It was the thing that really kept me going and kept me on the water because I haven't been big on owning boats. Mostly I've crewed on other people's boats. So... Crewing boats was a really big deal in my sailing life. It's also where I made most of my friendships. And it was a matter of building skill as I went. And I was hungry for information, hungry to learn the next thing and get it right and bring it back with me next week. And it didn't take long. I mean, with, within two years anyway, I wasn't answering the phone on Fridays because I'm already booked, man. (laughs) But I had the qualities in there that make for the guy that the skipper is looking for. That is to say, by and by, I developed a skill set. But just as much as that, I was reliable. And just as much as that, what I learned today, I brought back the next time. And if I screwed up, I wanted to know why so I could fix it.
0: You were racing quite frequently, as you said. What are some of the what did that lead to, I guess? Um, any any bigger races that, that are more memorable in your in your mind?
1: Oh definitely. Partly because I did take up journalism and start writing about boats. My name got around much faster than it would have if I had not been publishing stories about sailing and sailboats. Let's see, I arrived in 74 out of graduate school. By 1977, I had a ride on a 40-footer to Mazatlan. By 79, I had a cruise spot in Transpac. Hmm. Circa 1980 or 81, I was on the crew of, that is to say, I received crew letters for Windward Passage, which was a very big deal. Now, you're a different generation. Does Windward Passage ring with you?
0: It doesn't. I was gonna ask you to explain.
1: Uh one of the all-time yachts, 70 feet long, from the IOR era when Kealoa. That may be a name, you know, Jack yeah. Kilroy. Yeah. Um, these boats globe trotted the world. They were the rock stars of their day. And every three years, the Ocean Racing Maxi Fleet, which is what it was, would come to San Francisco. It was a small club. When I say club, it was a small group of owners who made it up, made up their own circuit. And they went around and around and around the world. San Francisco Bay was the only place where they raced around the boys. Other, otherwise, these were ocean racers. Huh. So it was a big deal for everybody when this tribe came to town. We would see large crowds gathering on the city front, you know, thousands of people, frankly. It was hard to imagine, but we had seen the America's Cup and it didn't draw that size crowd. But everybody who cared about sailboats was on the city front, when the Maxis were here. And there were two key boats, Kealoa and Windward Passage. Jim Kilroy went through four Kealoas. There was only one Windward Passage. She is kept today in Newport Beach and she is maintained as a museum piece. Well, if a fly lands on deck, don't swat it. (laughs) Eat the fly. (laughs) <laughs> While I was on the crew of Windward Passage, which was a really big deal to receive the crew letter and say, okay, you know, you, you are one of us. Come to Miami. We're racing over to Nassau. Great Isaac is a turning mark on the way to Nassau. And we were really reaching hard, middle of the night, a lot of breeze, and we broke the spin pole. Oof which a big aluminum thingamajig on a 70-foot boat, you can imagine that thrashing around. And so one of your opening questions was about memorable moments on a boat. This was definitely one of my most memorable moments on a boat, I remember the power of the boat and the shutter going through it as we broached and then the spin pole going bang. And then all hell broke loose, and we had to get the thing organized again. And here was the summit of my yachting experience. Doug Peterson, one of the great yachting designers of all time. Do you know the name, Doug Peterson? Sure. Well, Doug Peterson and I sprang into action, and we together saved the day. He sat on one side of the brake, and I sat on the other while the guys banded the pole back together.
0: <laughs> and you said this was at night?
1: It was the middle of the night. I don't remember which watch.
0: Still running downwind while you're repairing.
1: Yeah, actually, well, we had turned the corner and fared. If we hadn't broken the pole, we would have squared back a bit and gone more to a broad reach. But we had to get around the mark first and we screwed up.
0: Well, I'm looking at pictures of her now online and she is a sleek looking lady. I can imagine it was quite a ride aboard her.
1: (laughs) Yep. She was a thrill to sail on and a thrill to be part of.
0: You've not only been a part of racing since the 70s, you've covered it. What would you say are the biggest changes? I'm more curious not about the technical changes, because we've seen the 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 electronics and the navigation systems and of course GPS and change so much of racing. But what's happened in terms culturally to racing
1: over that time? I'd say it's much more stratified now than it was before. Now, this is a difficult one to take on. But if you look at something like Big keel boats. When I say big, I'm thinking 40-footers. Okay. During the 1970s, people were building new, into the 1980s, frankly, up until the recession of 1987, people were building custom new boats all the time. And it seemed really important. The magazines would deeply analyze every little thing about the new crop of ocean racers each year, the new generation, and Last year was rapidly eclipsed, but they weren't making the boats better. They were just making them trickier to get a better rating against the rule. So even if the boat wasn't fast, you wound up getting a good rating and you had a shot at winning. But for that period of time, forget about the boats, there was so much enthusiasm. It seemed so important. And owners were quite willing to burn $100,000 bills to have that brand new boat, get it out in the water, get it to Florida in the winter for the Southern Ocean Racing Circuit, where all the other boats, the new bills, would show up. And all the sailmakers who were the pros under the table in the day would show up, and it was bragging rights. It was gunshots on Main Street time. Mm-hmm. It seemed so important. In 1987, the recession hit, people stopped building brand new boats that way. The scene changed entirely. Now, bring it home to San Francisco Bay. We used to be a big arena for the kind of boats I'm talking about. We weren't necessarily the big test bed. They would probably sailed against each other before they got here. But people in Chicago, people in Fort Lauderdale thought nothing of having their 40-foot boat, 50-foot boat loaded onto a trailer and trucked to San Francisco Bay for the Big Boat Series because man, in September, where else would you want to be? And so there was all that excitement that would build up here every September and the docks would be full and then you hit the 1990s and no more. So for St. Francis Yacht Club as the Big Boat Series, we went through some very lean years. And I think it's fair to say that the J-105 class saved the Big Boat Series by being here, showing up, turned us into a bit of a joke because, oh, the Big Boat Series, huh? Well, J-105s. (laughs) But it was the, it's still the September Series on the West Coast. And they kept us going and you know that's our name and we're sticking to it Rolex Rolex still shows up with uh their Rolexes and their sponsorship dollars for the Rolex big boat series so you know you can be as snide as you want <laughs> that's our name man we got it
0: <laughs> you got it stick with it so you mentioned St. Francis Yacht Club and and I want to talk about that with you because you've been quite involved there but first I want to ask you if you remember the first time that you went in to the St. Francis.
1: I vividly remember the first time I went to St. Francis club. It was the original clubhouse, the one that burned in 1976. So this would have to go back to 74 or 75. And I was crewing on a Cal 40 in the big boat series in September. And so this was a big deal for me, chock-a-block with all these sailors and a lot of people that uh, I looked up to. And the Maxis were there. I don't know that Passage was there that year, but there were some very big boats there. And one of them was a boat from down under called Mistress Quickly. And in that old clubhouse that St. Francis had, there was a small bar in the middle of the building that was referred to as the ladies bar. And the reason this all comes through so vividly is that through a mix of alcohol and crowd noise and just excitement at being part of all of this, I remember the sight of the entire crew of this 70 foot boat up on the ladies bar, dancing and singing a very ribald version of old McDonald's farm. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that was like a fun time (laughs) so I hadn't realized that uh that the old clubhouse had burned down obviously I I haven't been (laughs) in San Francisco long that long was that devastating or was that was it quickly rebuilt and and was it rebuilt in a similar fashion
1: It was devastating and it was quickly rebuilt and it changed the club dramatically. Before the fire it was still very much the character of the small closely held republican gentleman's club that it had been founded as. Fortunately for the club we had a commodore in the early 1970s who looked at our bylaws and said something on the order of dudes. (laughs) Have, Have you looked at our bylaws and have you looked at the fact that we may own this building, but we leased the property underneath it from the city of county of San Francisco? And if something went wrong and they looked at our bylaws, no way. So the bylaws were adjusted. And so it came back different. That's what I can say. And much more modern, not just in terms of the structure, the look and feel. We had to build within the original perimeter. Okay. We couldn't go six inches out. We couldn't go two inches up. The club that emerged over the next few years was much more contemporary, open to women, open to minorities, not the closely held affair that it had been at one time. All of that is obviously fortunate because who we are now is actually pretty good. It's a big club with 2,400 members, And I'm sure that from the outside, it looks rather large and stiff and intimidating. But once you get inside, you find out it's a lively, warm bunch and a safe place for everybody.
0: And did you ever imagine when you first stepped foot in 74, 75, that one day you would be Commodore?
1: Never imagined such a thing and was very surprised when I came back from covering the 2007 America's Cup in Valencia, Spain. When I came back from that and was called into the nominating committee meeting and informed that there were people who thought I should be a director on the board, I thought, huh, <laughs> whatever for, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a businessman, I can't even manage a checkbook, why would you want me running the St. Francis Yacht Club? He said, yeah, Campbell, we've got all those guys. We've got the business acumen, we've got the attorneys. You go all over the world, you know people all over the world, you see things all over the world, you have ideas about the sport, that's what we want in the room. Okay. So, I was elected to the board of directors. I served three years. I never imagined myself as Commodore. It certainly was not an ambition. But before those three years were up, I heard people referring to me as being on the Commodore track. And I thought, man, um, this, is, this is weird. This is really weird. And I was clear for a couple of years after my term as a director. And then I was called in to the nominating committee and basically offered the role. And I said, no, it's not a cheap thing to be the commodore of that club. And I'm not a rich guy. So thank you very much, Unflattered. A year later, I was called in, kind of the same conversation all over again. And a third year, a third time. And the message this time was, it's not hard to find qualified people to serve on the board of directors. But the cross section of people who have the right personality, the right temperament, the right leadership outlook, and the willingness to serve in the flags as a Commodore, those people are harder to find and frankly, Kimball we really need you please. And I said yes. Then my Commodore track was off and running.
0: What are your duties as Commodore? What are the highs and lows? And what did it mean for you?
1: The lows are that uh, complaints come your way and You have to deal with discipline cases and you probably know the people you're dealing with in a discipline case. So that's definitely the low. The high? Well it's certainly an honor to be wanted. And your duties increase year by year, rear commodore vice and commodore. And when you do become commodore, the first thing you notice Is that you can't just walk into a room. Everything changes when the Commodore comes into the room. You've got to go to everybody there, recognize everybody, be part of everybody's evening or afternoon, whatever it is. That doesn't mean you have to go table to table in the restaurant, but you can't just ignore people. You make a lot of speeches, pass out a lot of trophies, and definitely bond with a lot of people in a special way. Now, in my case, my journey had one theme to it, which I never set out, said, okay, this is going to be my theme. 2014, when I was rear Commodore, after years, decades of paying no attention to junior sailing, never giving a thought to youth sports, it came to my attention that the junior program was nothing like anything I remembered. It uh, had changed completely. Something called high school ceiling had come in, and in particular, there was one thing wrong, and that was it had become a silo. We didn't know the kids. The kids didn't know us. I had a sophomore at University High telling his parents, yes, I joined the club, but I'm just a backdoor member. I'm not a real member. I flipped when I heard that. Hmm. And my response was to start taking kids sailing. That was the first immediate thing that I could do. Say, kids, come on, you're part of us. The rear Commodore wants you to come sailing on his boat. Which led to greater and greater levels of involvement, which meant that we made some changes, made some structural changes, It took some Commodore mojo to get that done. And then there were structural problems regionally that we shared. And the year after I was Commodore, I had the energy to apply myself to that, start calling meetings of Commodores from the region, say, look, we all agree we have the same problem. Everybody says, oh, we can't solve it. Well, yes, we can. And we made some progress on that. Because I was showing that kind of leadership, which is really not a norm. Usually the guy who just served as Commodore says, call me in 10 years. (laughs) But I had set out during my three years in the flags to make a difference with youth sailing. And it was addictive because I kept having these small successes along the way. So that year after I was Commodore, we got this success which was regional not just under the roof of the club and the guy who was then commodore said kimball you should take over running the junior program i thought what (laughs) you gotta be kidding me then i thought a bit more and i realized i still had things to do i probably wasn't the only person who could do them but i was the only person who would And so I became chair of the junior program and I've been at that for three years. We've made structural changes that are important, but the main thing has been a cultural change to convince the kids that they are part of something bigger than just the junior department over here. You're part of the whole club. You're part of something that's bigger than all of us. It's been a real cultural change and uh, I've been able to, be a spark plug in that.
0: That must be so gratifying, especially watching these kids as they progress. And I would imagine move on beyond junior sailing at some point.
1: It's very satisfying when maybe we hold a clinic for NACRA 15 catamarans and on Saturday morning, there's the, I won't use a name from, San Diego. She spots me and comes running across the lawn and grabs me in this big hug because she's so excited to be back at St. Francis Yacht Club in San Francisco. And there's Kimball. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's going to be out running the safety boat for us today again. Or there's a freshman at Tufts who pinged me just about a month ago about a particular boat. He sealed the 2019 Transpac He's looking for a ride in 2021. Hey, Kimball, what do you know about this boat? Well, I knew nothing about that particular boat, but I do know the designer and he would know. And within two or three hours, I was able to get back and say, no, that's not the boat you're looking for.
0: You, you mentioned one of the first things that you did was take some of the kids sailing because you could readily do that. And you wanted to make them feel more part of it. What do you remember about those first trips? grabbing some kids and saying, Hey, come sailing with me.
1: Nothing more than the joy of being on the water and sharing something that I love. And in most cases for most of those kids, it was their first time on a big boat. Kate too was under charter. She was 46 feet long, classic, Winner of the 1960 Swift Shore, so she was a made yacht in the Pacific Northwest. But, you know, you look at this kid. Now, I I I spent very little time on the helm of that boat. I was always hmm. putting somebody else on the helm. Yeah. And you look at this the look on a 15-year-old kid's face, and she's standing there at the wheel thinking, I'm 15 years old, I'm driving the Commodore's yacht. and you know it's something that was so easy to share but so meaningful and then there are other ways that things matter you know hey so-and-so I'm walking down to talk to Bo Vrolick on the Mayan come with me I'll introduce you well a couple weeks later that kid's out sailing on the Mayan the big schooner that Bo Vrolick has or uh, in 2018 Roy Pat Disney brought his gold-plated Alan Andrews 68-foot Piwacket to town and I pinged Roy and said, hey, could I give some kids uh, a dock tour? He said, yeah, oh, you could do dock tours, but uh, we're going out to look at sails. Why don't you send six kids sailing with us? And you can imagine they're out there with Olympians, America's Cup sailors, people just back from racing around the world in the Whitbread. Talk about a dazzle, but even better than the fact that six kids got a thrill ride for a day. One of them, who is very serious about becoming a big-time ocean racer, is still in touch with Olympic gold medalist Robbie Haynes, who manages Disney's racing fleet and who has become himself a mentor and advocate for this kit.
0: That's great. I want to change tax a little bit here because i asked you about changes in the racing world i'm really curious also about what you've seen in changes in journalism you've been working as a journalist in the sailing world and you talked about traveling all over the world but (laughs) as John Arndt and I talked about on this very podcast, sailing has changed and so has journalism. What has what, what that
1: meant to, for you? A greatly diminished role. Let me put, let me go at it this way. I was on staff at the San Francisco Chronicle for 14 years during some really good times, beginning in the late 70s through the 80s into the 90s when American newspapers had a big hiccup and shed a lot of personnel. The the Chronicle is going through another hiccup now and giving people buyouts and sending away some really good people. But anyway, that's how I left in 93. I was hired by Seal Magazine in 2000 to be their West Coast editor, although in practice I never really was their West Coast editor. I was just the guy working from a home office in San Francisco and globetrotting the world on behalf of Sale Magazine. And when I started at Sale, I visited Boston where they published it only a few times, but I did go there right after I started. And Sale Magazine was in a building that had a receptionist behind a desk. It was, it was a marble lobby is what it was this was on State Street in Boston. The offices looked out upon a view of Faneuil Hall. If you don't know Boston, just, just figure all of these things are landmarks in a really nice part of town. And the typical editor's office was literally an office. It had a door, it had that view, it had a desk, Perhaps it had a sofa or a couple of chairs. It was very old school. It wasn't any different from the way magazine offices you know, on the East Coast had been 50 years before. Progressively, that has changed. It's been a downgrade every time. At one point, they were moving out of that set of offices for another set of offices at the north end of boston and they had been sold to a corporation and the corporation said you don't need this big library get rid of the books you don't need all those half models get rid of those half models you don't need all those framed posters of old sale magazine covers you don't need this you don't need that progressively over a series of Sales with each rating corporation successfully stripping something from the magazine, we got to a point where there was a vice president somewhere in the chain who made a declaration that from now on, in order to save money, the offices of Seal magazine would no longer receive free copies of Seal magazine. <laughs> now that was never implemented, but that was put on the table somewhere up the Chain. By the time they were about to leave Boston, they were in a sub basement where you looked out the window and you watched shoes walking by. It had come to that. Never really affected me too much because, you know, I'm the loose nut on the West Coast for as long as that lasted. I got the last of the old school America's Cup assignments, 2007, Valencia did it the way magazines used to do the America's Cup. I moved to Spain, I rented an apartment, a two bedroom apartment in the old city, two bedrooms so that other editors could come over because it was part of the ethic that everybody got to go for a week to every America's Cup. Used to happen. Earlier on, while I was a newspaper guy and a contributor to SAIL, stayed in the SAIL house in Fremantle 1987 America's Cup. And they were down there forever. These days, will Sail Magazine send anybody to New Zealand? Maybe, maybe not. They don't have to. You can follow it all on TV. You can get all the press conferences online. The event itself and the teams put out the highest quality photographs you can imagine, and they give it away because they want the magazines to have it, the publications, whatever you are. If you think back to even 2007, which was the point where that was shifting radically, but certainly back to say 1987, there would be a lot of freelance photographers at an America's Cup and they would sell to the magazines. The magazines would buy the best stuff from whichever photographer uh, had the goods. Now, as I said, the teams have a team photographer and that person's job is to put out the goods and the press officer's job is to get it into the hands of journalists and you won't find freelancers there more than five minutes because it's useless.
0: Yeah. It has changed, for sure. What are some of your, uh, I mean, you have covered so many wonderful events and people. What are some of the highlights that stick in your head from your career over the years?
1: My first two TransPACs were both done while I was at the Chronicle. And that came about by walking into the editor's office. I didn't work at the, at the Chronicle, by the way. We had a really good relationship. The editor explained to me on day one of my employment that the sports department was pretty crowded and he would appreciate it if I would do my work somewhere else. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that worked out just fine. So the first race was 1979, and those were the days of radio telephone through the Marine Operator. I managed to spend, this is $1979, $3,000 worth of talk time dictating stories. Wow. Yes. But that's the only way you could get through.
0: But the newspaper covered it without adding an eyelid?
1: Well, the newspaper covered it, but I think it was probably more than they anticipated. Uh However, I talked my way back out there. I had the right ride in 1981, Zamazan, 52 foot far. She's still on the bay. She's still on the city front. And Zamazan was the boat to have in 1981. And I convinced the managing editor that if you let me go on this one, Number one, we'll win. Number two, it won't cost as much. And we won, and it didn't cost as much. (laughs) So we got away with that, but it did have its frustrations. Um, The radio wave propagation was best very, very late at night. Getting through to a desk at the Chronicle, Sometimes you just couldn't do it and the guy wouldn't wait any longer. And so on one occasion, I called up a friend. At least in this case, it went smoothly. The typical thing with talking to the night desk and dictating a story, I had left behind a list of all the terms I knew I would be using, how they're spelled, what they mean, what they refer to. Oh. So talking to the night desk, I'd be on the radio phone saying, Sierra, Papa, India, November, November, Alpha, Kilo, Echo, Romeo, spinnaker, damn Could you spell that again? So in this case, I was talking to a sailor and we got the thing through and he was kind enough to roll out of bed at 2.30 a.m. and take the dictation and then deliver it to the crime.
0: How were you writing the stories? I I, I want to dive into actually the logistics of
1: how you were filing
0: your stories.
1: Well, I was scratching them out on a piece of paper and then scratching them over as I edited and then dictating over the radio telephone.
0: And then they would be in the paper the next morning.
1: Exactly. I love it. That was state of the art. Yeah, I love it. The Chronicle had gone digital but when I started in, I think it was 77 or 79, probably 79, they had computers, but I had to go into the office in order to type the story into the system on a computer. In 87, when I was in Fremantle, Australia, the little Tandy machine from Radio Shack had come in. You could write a story on its program then to transmit it you would dial a telephone number and stick the two cups attached to the Tandy PC into the earpieces of the telephone and it would go wee 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 <laughs> yes. end of the story
0: i remember those noises i do i'm old enough for that that's fabulous and were you were you accruing as well as writing or were you just observing
1: if, if you're on a boat on the ocean your crew that yeah. I, I wouldn't wouldn't be able to keep my hands off things anyway right
0: I assume, I assume.
1: It, you know was I always wanted to be part of everything you know, that's um, I've adapted a little bit you know I'm not as young as I used to be I can stand to be aboard a racing boat and not you know just completely giving it my all Uh, i've adapted that way but it certainly wasn't my mode when i was doing all these things and most active
0: um what are you what are you excited about in the sailing world looking forward we've got an america's cup coming up we have the olympics
1: i certainly am interested in the america's cup i'm not excited about it in the way that I would have been in a different era of the America's Cup. I made myself something of a scholar of the cup. I covered my first cup in Newport, Rhode Island in 1980. I was on the scene in 1983 in a privileged vessel following Dennis Connor and Tom Whitten. And of course, Aussie, too, in a privileged vessel close enough to read the same wind shifts that they were seeing. And so I lost, I, I saw the cup lost in 1983. It was a moment that filled me with what I would want to call, if it weren't so overused, awe. It it was a memorable moment that you, you know, I've never been able to. Forget living that reality, the loss of the America's Cup. I was in Australia when Connor won it back. That was a big deal, but it didn't have the same sort of penetrating, my bones are shaking feeling that I got from seeing the loss of the cup. I got really, I was very disappointed when Larry Ellison and Russell Coots took the America's Cup away from San Francisco Bay and took it to Bermuda. I realize it's a conversation, complex conversation, because dealing with the city was not easy. The organization that Ellison had built in which he brought to San Francisco did not make it easy for the city in the way that they, uh, I guess I'll just go ahead and say it, with their arrogance. But the America's Cup at one time meant a lot to me. John Kostecki, was until recently the only person who had ever won an Olympic medal, a race around the world, and the America's Cup. kosteki and I go back a little bit. I mentioned Cal 20s earlier, and yeah. while I was racing Cal 20s, kosteki was sailing with his dad on their Cal 20. I can remember John as an eight-year-old in an oversized Um, life jacket, standing on a dock in Sausalito, and it didn't occur to me to ask him, John, what did we do wrong today? But it occurs to me now that he probably could have told me. Hmm. When John was 13, I lied and said he was 14 so he could go to the Tinsley Island Laser Training Camp. On the final day, they did a little regatta, John won. I remember someone saying, well, he's the littlest kid out there. He's the lightest. Of course he won. It was a light air day. I thought, yeah, maybe. When he was 14, I sponsored him into St. Francis Yacht Club as a junior member. And when the first AC-45s arrived on San Francisco Bay, I was invited out for a ride. So I was met on the dock at the Golden Gate Yacht Club, and I was suited up with the flotation gear and the flat jacket and the helmet, loaded into a rib, and about halfway out there, (laughs) this this is getting real, I looked at the boat, and I saw John on the deck. The America's Cup had come to San Francisco Bay, and I choked up just like now.
0: Wow. Kimball, I want to thank you so much. This has been a fabulous conversation. I've learned a lot and really enjoyed it.
1: Well, I don't know what else I would have done with my Thursday night. So (laughs) thanks for the invitation.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, do leave a comment in Apple Podcasts Or you can shoot me a message at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Always love to hear from listeners. Again, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.